0: You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your yes, hosts, sir. Ron and Chris. Welcome back
1: to the show. Glad to be back again here at RSA, along with a very close friend of ours. We have Lenny Zeltzer, CISO at Axonius, mm-hmm. and also author and instructor at Sands Institute. That's right. Hi, Glad to have you on, on the show. Yeah, it's
2: great to be here.
0: You know, it's kind of a dream because Lenny, I, I reached out to Lenny many, many years ago, because he had had some inputs into a, a malware book that came out and we were looking at some buddies of mine and I we were looking to build uh, a course around the book and it, it's so funny because then when we finally met each other you know just recently it, it's like all those memories come back I was like I think I wrote him an email a long time ago yeah, so it's, yeah. it's
2: fascinating that you see the name and you're like where did I see that name before or, yeah. or where have I seen that face before and it takes a little bit of time to to remember that but especially being here at RSA conference that happens a lot I'm sure to you as well you you pass somebody at the sidewalk wait a second and you back up Yeah, and uh, you, you, you haven't seen somebody for a while and here we are
0: Yeah, so you are definitely one of the household names for cybersecurity, in my opinion. But for those that don't know you yet, sort of what has been your story up until this point, and what are you doing today?
2: Oh, well, I hope you've got a couple of hours. (laughs) Let me tell you, it all began... I'll start the watch. ...on a stormy (laughs) night. (laughs) Well, uh, when I think backwards... My uh, last uh, seven years or so, I spent building security products. That was the role of product management that I've had uh, at a number of companies, Uh, a a large company and, and a small company. And so that was very interesting because you try to anticipate the needs of security product consumers in enterprises trying to understand where do they need help that they are not already getting help from technology. So that was a lot of fun. And before that, I spent a lot of time in consulting, consulting to enterprises. I got involved with cloud security early on, maybe even before it was called cloud security. In those days, we just called it security. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, enterprises were trying to figure out how do we outsource uh, aspects of our IT to somebody else and still maintain some security and governance over those processes. So I spent a lot of time consulting, I spent a lot of time uh, building products, uh, and uh, now I am a, a CISO of an organization actually owning my own security program, which is a bit different uh, from advising others how to build theirs. And then in, in parallel to all of these different responsibilities that I've had over the years, I've also been involved with SANS Institute, uh, and this has been for oh, almost almost two decades now where I got involved analyzing malware. I was one of the the early people in the industry analyzing malware outside of the antivirus industry. And and so I got involved with SANS and have been teaching and uh, writing courses for all those years.
1: Wow. So what do you think was the turning point of kind of taking a step back from being so hands-on and kind of looking at the bigger picture more?
2: As as, as I grew as a professional, I was trying to figure out where I'm going. And I think all of us who've been in this industry for more than a year, let's say, are wondering where is my profession taking me. Sometimes it means uh, you're becoming a deeper and deeper technologist, a a better analyst, a a more experienced security engineer. Sometimes it means going more broadly, acquiring expertise in a variety of different technologies. And uh, for me, uh, that growth came from coming closer and closer to understanding uh, business needs of the organizations that are spending money on security, not because they want to, but because they have to, perhaps, because regulators uh, tell them that they need to do it, and also because they have to, to meet the needs of their customers, and because they have to, to manage their enterprise risk. So I've been just, I guess, moving up the stack, if, if that's the right way to visualize it, getting closer and closer to to where the money comes from, I right. suppose.
0: Right, yep, that makes a lot of sense. So I, I understand that you have all the requisite Abilities to be a CISO, but what does it mean to be a CISO today? In your opinion?
2: Yeah, it's it's something that I'm still trying to figure out. The the last time that I owned a security program myself was many years ago, even before I got into consulting, and that was a very different world. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it and more
0: of like a, a head of security role? Uh, yeah, I, I
2: was director of security at right. a company, which since I was the only person in. responsible for security, maybe I could have fought for and got the title of a chief information security officer, I don't know. But right now, as we're discussing this, I've been in the role of a CISO for six months and I am still trying to figure out, well, what does that mean? Right. Is the CISO, the person responsible for making sure the organization addresses all risks that are relevant to the business? Uh, Or is the CISO responsible for surfacing the right risks and placing the burden of addressing those risks on business units within the organization? And perhaps the truth is somewhere in between. But uh, to me, the role of a CISO is to bring a, a voice of information security and related risk management practices to the to the C-level executives and right. ultimately to the board.
0: Yep, I agree with that. So yesterday I was having a discussion with some, some people and we were talking about what does it mean to like lead security for an organization? Are you focused on reducing risk? Like what are you doing? And one of the analogies that kind of just popped into my mind was this analogy of an, an F1 car. And you have your entire team that's sitting in the pits, and they're watching all the gauges, they're watching all the, the thresholds, and they're telling you just how fast and how hard can you push the car to move to the next position, to to see if you can actually win. Uh, and it's not so much of like, you can't do that, It's it's saying, you can do that this hard without you know, mm-hmm. taking on any additional risks that we're not comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, certainly someone who is in the role of a CISO is one that, I- that that is a person who should be able to provide that kind of guidance mm-hmm. to other people who have other responsibilities, other backgrounds, who might not be as attuned to what is the threat lasca- landscape like, what is the regulatory landscape like with respect to cybersecurity requirements or privacy requirements. And speaking of which, by the way, it's interesting that uh, right now, even though my role is that of a CISO, which is cyber, well, focused on cybersecurity, I'm uh, taking on more and more responsibility related to privacy of the data. Absolutely. I wonder if that's a trend where we're going, uh, uh, security people are gonna be asked to take on privacy related requirements, especially now that uh, GDPR is uh, active in full force Mm. and in the United States those types of requirements are starting to surface up as well. Or maybe we're gonna actually need for people to specialize in doing nothing but privacy, I'm not sure. So
1: now that you're kind of getting more and more acclimated to be being a CISO and probably interfacing with other CISOs maybe at other product companies or big organizations. But within other product companies, do you find there's a lot of similarities between like the skills or the set of knowledge that CISOs have, or do you think that like, it's pretty unique mm. wherever you go when it comes to like let's say vendor land?
2: Mm, interesting. Hmm. I I'm not sure if I have a data-based approach to answering your question. Uh, A lot of it's going to be just personal uh, observations, but I suspect that the chief information security officers who work for technology companies might be more technical, maybe, than those who work in other industries. Uh, I don't know, maybe we'll call it a hypothesis. I, I think the reason for that might be that if this is a technology company, that has a strong engineering culture. You mm-hmm. need someone who is technical to be able to, well, to 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 collaborate with other people who maybe have also an engineering background. W- maybe that's the thing uh, in vendorland, uh, but but I'm not sure. It's it's just a hypothesis, really. Yep. W- what I am finding though is that I'm uh, I'm a CISO at Exonius which is a cybersecurity technology right. company, and and a part of my role is outward facing where I am uh, 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 talking about the security program that we're building publicly so that our customers feel comfortable entrusting us with uh, delivering a product to them. Because right? if you're a security vendor, then uh, you're expected to have a strong security program, but but don't assume that that's always the case. Mm, right. So I suspect that a lot of CISOs that work for technology companies, especially if these are security companies, have a certain event evangelism, a responsibility that maybe CISOs and let's say pharmaceutical or financial services companies don't have.
0: Yep. Do you think that with all of the focus being on privacy lately, that chief privacy officer might supersede like a chief information security officer and that would actually be the forefront for a company?
2: We must not let that happen. <laughs> CISOs must unite in our front against the <laughs> privacy officers <laughs> and make sure that we are the ones are <laughs> running the world. <laughs> uh, y- you know, I, uh, I don't know. It, it's We have had security-related regulations for a while in some industries, Certain yep. fi- certainly financial services, for instance, and certainly in uh, among retails. I'm talking about PCI. Mm-hmm. And I spent a lot of time in the world where PCI was very important, working with retailers. and And I saw that companies will do the bare minimum required to meet uh, regulatory compliance or other kind of formalized contractual obligations. Mm -hmm. And if not for those requirements, companies would do a whole lot less and ultimately that would uh, be uh, at a cost to to consumers and and clients of those organizations. And uh, what I'm seeing now from the privacy perspective is that the reason why companies, or the reason why we are talking about privacy is because it's relevant. Why? Because the laws are now coming right. into effect to represent the needs of consumers who have really been uh, disserviced by, by many organizations. Mm-hmm. So I- it is quite possible that these laws will have enough teeth mm-hmm. to convince companies to put enough money aside for privacy. Right. And that means that CISOs might be able to latch, o- let latch on to that budget mm-hmm. and see where privacy related controls and initiatives and security related controls and initiatives overlap mm-hmm. and and maybe steal or, b- or, or, or make use of some of that budget because when I look at, at our own privacy and security program I see a whole lot of overlap
1: yeah yeah absolutely so that's funny that we're laughing about like they must not do that yeah. uh, when when I'm looking at the opportunity becoming a CISO, like looking at those opportunities out there it's I, I asked myself, have you wanted to do that, or was that something like being in the C-suite or being an executive at an organization, is that what you wanted to do, or is this kind of an opportunity that has kind of appeared, and now you're taking advantage of it? What, what is it for you?
2: Well, I, I have uh, learned not to make long-term plans, and I don't have long-term goals that there are... Specific. I, I've never thought, well, this is whom I want to be when I grow up. Right. Uh, it, because I figured that that's a sure way of setting myself up for disappointment. Yes. Absolutely. You can't be disappointed if you have no expectations. Wait, you're telling me I can't go to the NBA? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I always took it, you know, if you will, one step at a time. I, I knew that I wanted to know more about whatever it is I'm doing. I knew that I wanted to be challenged in various ways because uh, otherwise things just get boring. As I was uh, at some point getting bored with, I was w- with what I was doing in information security, I decided that maybe it's time for me to leave information security. I wasn't sure. Uh, mm-hmm. The problem that I ran into, and this was uh, maybe 13 years ago, I, I felt that it, I was solving the same problems. The solutions were always the same. I was interfacing with the same people. And it just I, I got, it got really frustrating. Mm-hmm. So I I decided uh, to get an MBA. Yeah. Yeah. So I... Uh, I plucked myself out of the industry for roughly a year and a half or uh, almost two years. And, and, and then, as I was learning about business and about other potential careers, you know, a lot of my classmates wanted to become management consultants. A lot of my classmates wanted to become um, marketers or investment bankers. I realized, no, I, I like technology and I really like information security. Right. So I came back to it, if you will. But, but that gave me the confidence of knowing that I'm doing this, not out of habit but because I really want to. A, a, and at some point, I decided that I will never become a CISO. I really was certain that this role is not right for me. And I decided that when I, I had the opportunity to work on the profit-generating side of the business. Yeah, So CISOs, or information security teams, are typically the cost center. Mm-hmm. You cost money, right. and the company spends that money because it has to. And I realized that life is so much better on the profit side of the house. Right. Uh, there's a reason why uh, you know, sales teams tend to have a better holiday party than the engineering team. <laughs> um, not always, <laughs> but that was my experience. That. Yep. And I thought that if you're a cost center, you just have to work that much harder to get respect and to justify your existence and to defend your budget requests. Yes. And I thought, why should I work that hard? And, but after a while, I... I I guess I changed my mind. I I had this opportunity at Exonius, we created a a role of a CISO, and I thought, uh, I, I think I'm a good match for this role. But the reason why I felt comfortable taking on that role in this particular organization is because we see security as an enabler for our business. Right. We're not just doing this because we have to. We're doing this because we're a security company yes. and one of the goals for my program is to build a program in such a way that we can discuss it with prospects and customers and they might say, alright, these guys know what they're talking about. M- let's take a, a closer look at their product. So, so that helped me becoming a, a, a CISO in this particular role, but in another organization I would be a, not a good match for it.
0: Yeah, I think it'd be a, a missed opportunity uh, for us to not talk about your writing course. So you actually develop and you teach a course for SANS on specifically on writing. And it, I would love to hear the story of when, you know, in my Samuel L. Jackson was, that's it, I've had it. <laughs> when, when were you like, this needs to be a course, this is something that needs to be out in the community. Was that story?
2: Actually, it's very similar to what you just described. <laughs> I, was, I was at a point where I was, I was uh, uh, reviewing a lot of writing that my colleagues were doing, and I kept seeing the same types of issues. And I remembered that I, a long time ago, was making the same mistakes. And And when I look back at where I felt that I really had a, a boost to my own writing skills is is back in the day when i when I was contributing content to books, and at the time I benefited from the publisher providing a copy editor that would work with me and mark up all of my poor word choices and grammar problems and other issues. And, uh, and and because I was submitting one chapter at a time, I was able to learn from that feedback and try to adjust and preempt those problems. And it is through that feedback loop that I feel my own skills improved dramatically. And then afterwards, I've had a chance to do a whole lot of writing as a, as a consultant and, uh, and as a product manager. and And so I believe that people are not necessarily born great writers just like people are not necessarily born great communicators in general it's right. just such a skill that you can definitely learn through the right feedback loop yeah and and i felt like i was developing ideas for how one might teach security professionals to write better and and it was all in my head and 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 I just needed to get it out of my head it was just becoming too much and so at the time uh, some folks at SANS were also looking at what made many of our students very successful in their roles within the organization Mm -hmm. even as security technologists and the feedback that we got from from many of those students was that the skills were very very strong the technological skills, but then when they combine those with strong communication skills, that allowed them really to get uh, certain recognition uh, at their employers and among their clients. So, so I was interested in doing the course. Sans was interested in doing the course, and we thought, all right, let's let's give it a try. Even though I feel that this uh, this was a a big risk, yes. a big risk for us. Yeah, it's
1: yeah. great. So one of the things that Chris always talks about <coughs> is taking a report that might be a thousand words and distilling it to like a hundred to two hundred words. What's the strategy that you found helpful when kind of starting that process of bec- becoming better besides using the the copywriter?
2: Hmm. Uh, so uh, a few years ago, I I was just for fun. I, I I looked at a security policy. I think it was a security policy of Princeton University. I, I, w- I just came across it because it was publicly available. I was looking for policy templates. And I thought, that's very, very verbose. What are some of the ways in which I could say essentially the same thing, but more succinctly, but also have fun with it. So I decided to translate that policy into haiku, (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Fantastic. <laughs> and, and I had a bit of fun with it. I mean, obviously, this was not real. Nobody would actually provide a security policy <laughs> in, a, in a poetry form. Let's you do it. I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that was uh, published a blog post a few years ago, and it, it was a, a lot of fun uh, for me because Haiku uh, imposes this completely arbitrary set of restrictions on you. Right. And what I realized about myself is that if someone gives me certain restrictions, surprisingly, I can find a way to fit into those restrictions. You're more creative. Yeah, it just forces you to be more creative or or, or more uh, perceptive about whatever it is you're doing. And so what that means is that sometimes when we write security policies or security reports, we don't have specific constraints on us. For example, when I was doing security consulting, I was creating, let's say, security assessment reports. You know, in many ways, the longer my report was, the more impressive it looked. You'd have that and if you print it and you throw it on the table and you say, wow, now that's worth a lot of money. So now, what I try to do uh, on myself, if nobody imposes length constraints on me, I try to impose them onto myself. For right. example, when I create a formal report, I try to push myself to create an executive summary that is no longer than a page. Right. It could be two pages, that's fine, but if I tell myself, let's stick to that page, or three paragraphs, or sometimes just one paragraph, I find a way to say it more succinctly, I just need to impose these restrictions onto myself if nobody does that for me. So that's one technique that I use. Okay. A related technique that I found works for me as well, is one where I write write down a paragraph. Maybe I'm writing an email message. Maybe I'm creating some kind of a formal memo or a policy or or a report. I I write down the paragraph and I try to be very mindful of doing it as succinctly as possible. But then when I'm done with it, I go back and I challenge myself to cut it by at least 20%. It's an arbitrary number that I picked. And I am shocked how often I succeed at doing it even beyond 20%. So I think it's just a matter of giving yourself a reminder that once you put it down, even if it's a quick email message you're sending out, just reread that paragraph. Are there certain words you can cut? Is there certain ways in which you can phrase the same thing but but more succinctly? The fewer words you use, the less likely you are to be misunderstood sometimes, but more importantly, the fewer words you use, the greater the chances that somebody's actually gonna get to the end of what you're trying to say.
0: Wow. Wow. What a way to top that <laughs> off. Lenny, thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with us on the, the podcast. If uh, there are people out there who want to stay in touch with you, the stuff that you're doing, the stuff you're doing with your company, what is the best way for yeah, people to do that? reach
2: out to me. Reach out to me on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as uh, Lenny Zeltzer, And uh, you can find my website, uh, which is zeltzer.com.
0: Fantastic. Amazing. Thank you so much, Lenny. And see everybody next time. Thanks, guys.